Hey friends, welcome to another episode of That Sounds Fun. I'm your host, Annie F. Downs. So happy to be here with you today. The music in the background is from our good buddy, Mr. Torn Wells. Make sure you grab a copy of his album, Citizen of Heaven. Oh, I'm so sad. The couples month is over. I hope you guys enjoyed that as much as I did. If you didn't get to hear all those couples, go on back and listen. We had so many great episodes in February, but March is here and we are doing it again. We've got great episodes for you again this month. I'm so, so excited. Hey, by the way, today's episode is brought to you by our friends at Prep Dish. Prep Dish is my new secret weapon for healthy, stress-free meals. Prep Dish is a meal planning service. And every week you get an email with a grocery list and prep ahead instructions. So all of your meals are ready for the week. No guesswork needed. You'll do your chopping and mixing ahead of time, leaving you with zero decisions to be made at dinner. If you have a crazy schedule, this is such a time saver. You'll feel like a super mom or a super dad or a super friend when you serve amazingly delicious meals. Like um, that smoky paprika chicken legs with roasted vegetables. Yes. And the turkey and zucchini lasagna. Uh, The founder, our friend Allison, is offering my listeners a free two-week trial to try it out. You can't beat that, you guys. So go to prepdish.com slash Annie for this amazing deal. Again, that's prepdish.com slash Annie. And don't forget, they have gluten-free, paleo, and keto options, too. Again, that's PrepDish.com for your two weeks for free. You're going to love it. Hey, today on the show is a dude I love and respect so, so much. David Kinnaman, the president of Barna and the author of many books I love, including Unchristian, You Lost Me, and most recently, along with Mark Matlock, Faith for Exiles, Five Ways for a New Generation to Follow Jesus in a Digital Babylon. There seems to be a lot of conversations going on around me about technology and faith and and what the world is like today. And so I called my friend David and asked him if he would hop on with us and chat about this. So I hope you enjoy this conversation with president of Barna and author, speaker, all around great dude, David Kinnaman. We were just talking about our friend Gabe Lyons and his superpowers connecting people. Why do you think it matters to be able to identify your superpower like that? Well, I feel like for those of us of a certain age, I uh, just turned 46 this holiday and, um, you know, uh, it, you have to be clear on what God's called you to do and what he hasn't called you to do. Mm. Um, you know, I got this great coaching from a guy by the name of Pete Richardson, another guy I met through Gabe Lyons. And uh, he's like, Hey Dave, I think, I think you're, you know, th- three things you list off. And, and that was after a long time of him listening in on certain things <clears throat> that I was doing. And I've used those three characteristics now. It's like a North pole for oh, wow. or North star, I guess I should say, you know? And so I think the more you're clear on what you're good at, and then when you're clear on what other people do without, without, you know, harmfully judging them or putting them into a box, we can each serve the the kingdom in a greater way. And um, I, how important that is for us to understand, understand those deeper motivations feels, feels critical. Yeah. Because it feels to me, correct me if I'm wrong, but it feels to me, uh, I can accidentally, my problem is always going to be, I'm going to say yes to things I'm not called to do. I'm not going to say no to things that I am called to do. I can, I can, my personality can end up with me doing way more than I need to do, not uh, missing out. Yeah. When I hang out with people, a friend of mine, Britt Merrick, um, was past pastor of our local church for many years in California called Reality. And yeah. 
Um, he's 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 a great guy because every once in a while you come across a person who who really intentionally does a quite a bit less than the the normal you know the normal type A or driven or ambitious person. He's an ambitious guy in his own way, but um, I'm always really impressed when I'm around people that that don't take the bait of trying to do or say yes to too many things. Um, and I don't know, I, I was talking to another friend of mine last night about this idea that, you know, if, if for those of us in a certain tradition who believe in God's sovereignty, you actually realize, you know, it's, it's actually doesn't like if you say yes to something you shouldn't say yes to, I mean, God's still going to use that for good, right? but you don't, God doesn't depend on us doing work for the world to, to world to spin or for the kingdom to move forward or for, you know, the church's work to work. And, um, and, and conversely, you know, I think saying no to more things, it actually frees you up uh, to say yes to the right things and that God in his sovereignty. I mean, that's like, I still remember an Andy Stanley talk at Catalyst 15 years ago, and it was, a, he was teaching about a, a thing in Daniel uh, chapter four, where Daniel says to Nebuchadnezzar, God is sovereign over the kingdoms of men and he gives them to whom he wishes. And that, that, that went pretty deep in my leadership, that talk, uh, because it was like, okay, you know what? God is sovereign over companies and leaders and churches and organizations and and even then the very things that I say yes to or no to. So when I say no to something, I can really trust in God's sovereignty that, you know, that I'm doing what God, you know, has designed me to do to say no yeah. to more more things than I say yes to. Yeah, that feels to me like one of the things I'm trying to figure out is it is easier for me to accidentally say yes than to accidentally say no. Is that a personality thing or is that kind of all of us? that have the privilege and the time and the ability to do that. It's both the temptation of our modern world and it is a personality type for some of us that, you know, get, get these opportunities to do things. But any of us who are, you know, bit busy running a church, you know, being at home with kids, you know, whatever our life life is like um, it is filled up. And I think, you know, screens, digital context, like it feels like every spare minute now, uh, is telling you all the things you could do, right? Um, and I think that's actually one of the one of the particular challenges of life in the modern and the digital world that we live in. I mean, I've got uh, three kids, twenty, eighteen, and fifteen, and my two girls who are in college now. Um, they're amazing, wise, discerning young women. It's just like such a privilege to be a parent now of adult children, um, and um, and yet I, I, I can see in their pressure filled, anxious filled, like, what do I major in? Like, you know, there's so many pressures of what could you do? And it, it feels like that's one of the things that's unique about all of our efforts today, um, that there's just, there's so many options and you feel like there's so many things you could do, should do, ought to be thinking about. And that makes, you know, it kind of compounds the problem of saying yes to too many things. Uh, and I will tell you, as one of your single friends, one of the things we talk about a lot is while online dating, I really believe in it and like it. And I think the apps are really helpful that you're meeting people with similar intentions and that kind of thing. It also has made us all feel like there's maybe too much option. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, so, you know, a lot of the the concepts that I've been thinking through for the last almost a decade about what I call digital Babylon is... Uh, yes, I is, totally wanted you to define this. So go here. Yeah. So digital Babylon, I was doing a radio interview years ago about you know the, the exile experience of young Christians. And I said, it's like they're in Babylon like Daniel was, but it's a digital Babylon. It was just like a you know throwaway comment, but it, it sort of like resonated with the with the interviewer and then and then you know kind of like was like ah that's kind of a cool phrase. And so you know I, I feel like part of what's happening, you know, we're we're being exposed 
to you know issues and causes and you know the speed of the news cycle and you know you can see suffering around the world instantaneously in yeah. your in your social media feed and so all of these pressures and even how we allot our time um, you know someone was telling I don't know if the stat is true but that the chewing gum um, use is down because the nervous energy that people used to spend, you know, chomping their jaws is now going to or towards using their their phones. Oh gosh. And whether that's whether that's a true stat or not, I mean it is true that that, that these devices um, are are amazing and what a privilege it is to live in this technological era. But there are also these really interesting pressures that just like Daniel in the scriptures, for those of us in of a, of a certain you know religious tradition, um, he was you know carried off into a new world and a new context where power and prestige and pleasure and optionality and all these different things were available to him almost instantaneously and um, and so I think there's some some something for us to learn in that that notion of what does it mean to be faithful in a new digital a digital context and that feels like I mean truly I we've joked a couple of times on the show this year already that that you didn't see anybody at the beginning of the year say like my new year's resolution is more time on my phone. <laughs> right. Right. It's everybody is feeling this, like it's too much and I, there is too much here. And yet at the same time, one of the points that you make in faith for exiles that I love about what we're trying to figure out right now is that this is also an opportunity for us to digitally disciple people that we may not reach any other way. Yeah, no doubt. I mean, there, we, we, we really are um, because of the, the disruptive nature of technology and how it's changed so many different industries and human relationships. I mean, that's so interesting how like teenagers today don't have the same kind of skills, social skills that I think teenagers of, of a previous generation would have had. It's not that they're worse for it. Well, maybe they are, but, it's, <laughs> but it's, it is what it is. You know, these pressures are really changing, you know, how we think about what it means to be human and how we spend our time and, um, you know, you joke about like people making a new year's resolution about spending, you know, nobody says they want to spend more time on their devices, you know, ever since that, uh, that feature on, 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 you know, the iPhone says like how much screen time you use. It feels like every single week it says you used more than you did last week. I was like, I, I don't even know how that's possible, but, um, do you know, David, I haven't even turned that on yet. I don't even want to see <laughs> it. I haven't, I haven't done anything with it yet. <laughs> well, you know me, stats guy. Like, I, I, right, I right, right. Like, You're like, give me all the stats. I create an infographic about every single one of my days. And so it's like every day I'm like, <laughs> I'm living in a pie chart. That's right. And so what is that telling you about what, when you, well, well, actually let's back up. Will you just take a quick minute and explain what Barna is and you being the president of it, just in case for a couple of our friends who haven't met you yet, what is Barna and how do you get the research you do about Christianity and the people that are not of our faith? Yeah, happy to. Um, and thanks for asking me to, to find it. It's a, it's a, it's a social research company. Barna was started by a gentleman by the name of George Barna. I started working with him in 1995, uh, straight out of college. And, um, I was an intern. I sort of expected to stick around a few years and, um, get, get into church ministry, which was sort of my aspiration in high school and in college, uh, was to, to lead a church. And, um, and so one thing, you know, led to another here, three years here, 10 years. And then, and then I bought the business from him uh, in 2009. And so Barna, you know, now I run, run the company and it's a social research company that focuses on, um, you know, helping people understand using, using research, using statistics, using infographics, um, you know, what's happening in our culture. So I've written different books on some of the research, you know, Barna's uh, sort of a 
a, a primary provider of data into churches so that churches can be data informed not data driven but you know it's so easy for us right. to t- you know just get, guess about work guess about our ministry work or our our, our work but we've also done so- stuff for you know, entertainment companies like um, paramount and dreamworks and sony pictures and um universal music and we've we've provided um, market research about the christian audience but but we also interview in every one of our studies people across a faith spectrum um, as any of the big research companies would do uh, pew gallup Nielsen, JD Power, and we use those. We use that data then to help us understand what's happening. You know, we try to interpret culture to Christian leaders primarily, and then we try to help Christian leaders understand what's you know what their mission and mandate is, is to be effective and faithful. Um, so it's we we also think we help to translate you know the church, the broader Christian trends into cultural um, you know c- sort of cultural leaders understanding. So we interpret that for mainstream media and for you know, mainstream companies, et cetera. And it just feels like one of the other things I love seeing y'all do is you'll do research for one of our friends who's writing a book so that what they teach and what they write isn't just like, so we think this is true. They're like, no, Barna did all this research and we know that this is how this word, I think about Jonathan Merritt's book about the words we use in faith. And how y'all did research alongside with him to be like, no, this is actually when this word stopped being used and what people think it means now. Yeah. uh, So it's fun to be able to amplify and give, you know, a dose of reality um, to to these important, you know, conversations or important projects. Um, I have this whole like thesis about, you know, research is... Um, is actually better than guesswork um, when it comes to really understanding. I mean, no brainer, right? Like it's better for us to do a study and figure out what's what's happening than it is to like, I think, you know, half of Americans or, you know, I think the popular imagination and I think a lot of what happens on news media and other things is people just pontificating or imagining or they've talked to, you know, a hundred people and they take that as representative of what's happening in a culture. Um, But at the same time, you know, research has its limitations um, and it's, you know, it depends on the questions you ask and the methodologies you use and how you interpret that data and the stories you tell from it. Um, So, you know, research is better than our, you know, the sort of, it's like, it's not the the plural of anecdote is not a data point, but Uh it is not, it's not easy for us uh, sometimes, you know, the, the whole classic quote of like statistics lie um, is true in, on some level when you don't understand kind of how to use research and how to apply it. Like there's got to be a whole approach to using research that really informs us to be, um, you know, the men and, men and women we were meant to be. So when you and Mark Matlock were writing Faith for Exiles and thinking about the generation that's coming up, because so many of my friends listening are either raising young people or are in a leadership somewhere in a church or in a company or in a school where there are people younger than us that we have to think about. And and I just keep noticing that even people in their—I'm in my 30s, even people in their 20s think so differently about the church and the internet than I do, and we're only 10 years different. Totally. Yeah, I think some of the, the the changes are accelerating between generational cohorts like that. A lot of our data shows that's to be the case, or that is that is the case. Yeah. So Mark and I were Mark Matlock's been a longtime friend. Um, Mark's a guy who's done a lot of speaking to teenagers and young adults and to parents. I think he I think he's spoken live to more than a million uh, young people in his life. And um, oh yeah, I believe it. He's awesome. Yeah, he's a great guy and and just this really great heart to try. He's a he's like a 
a very good amateur magician, illusionist, and um, he's a, he's a fun fun person to be around when he comes and stays with us. My kids love hearing his stories, so he's a very entertaining guy and very very uh, engaging. Yeah, and um, you know, whereas I'm like, hey kids, let's look at my PowerPoint slides. This <laughs> afternoon. You know, that is not true. You're so much more entertaining than you're giving yourself credit for. <laughs> well, uh, you'd be surprised how how quickly I can suck the life out of a, a family dinner with a, a quick stat <laughs> with discussion. a good stat. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but. Um, so, so Mark and I have been really working together for uh, t- for two decades. Uh, he did a study through Barna, just like you were talking about earlier, on on teens and evangelism and teens and the supernatural, and like you know, do teenagers experience the reality of a supernatural world? They believe in ghosts and demons and other things, and it's surprising how spiritually minded teenagers were then and are today. So, we've had this um, partnership for many years, trying to understand what what makes the next generation tick. And so we, uh, I've done a number of books now, Unchristian with Gabe Lyons, You Lost Me. Oh, I love that book. Thanks. And uh, Unchristian, then You Lost Me, um, which was a book about young people walking away from faith. And Unchristian is really about the negative perceptions of the church and how we're defined for all the things we're against. So I felt like I wanted to sort of finish a trilogy and look at not just what's wrong or the roadblocks or the image problems, but what's going right. And we we looked at these resilient young Christians, as you're sort of alluding to, you know, these 20-somethings um, that are just, you know, to use an old phrase, like on fire for their faith. But they're they're really they're really demonstrating a different way of life and the commitment to the church, commitment to scriptures. And so this whole study was born out of that idea of not just studying the problems, which, you know, I think is really important and, you know, dedicated better part of a decade to doing that. But right. now what can we learn from what's going right? And so Faith for Exiles is the product of that. And it's such a a change of mindset for me. And when I think about my friends that we have these conversations of, it's so often talking about the generations behind us. We're not talking about what's going right. We're talking about what's going wrong. And so... I love that, that Faith for Exiles is about a little bit uh, more toward here's some things that are going right and here's what we can do to really help young Christians in this digital Babylon era. You know, atheism is on the rise with young people. uh, And I think that's partly because they're exposed to so much compelling content via YouTube. Right. And um, will you talk about that for just a minute? Will you talk about the YouTube thing? Because even when I say to my friends that are my age, my peers, I'm like, hey, my friends in their 20s scroll YouTube like we scroll Instagram. They were like, what? No. How did they? But everyone, I mean, 30s, mid 30s and lower, they're treating YouTube like another social media network. And not only that, it, it, it really, this is why I say the gospel according to YouTube, and it's become their their reference point for reality. Um, I'm actually today down in, in Los Angeles at a, a co-working space. We, we, we uh, have an office in Atlanta, office in Nashville, and then, and then it's a group called Industrious, a great, great group we've, we've partnered with. And, um, and so I'm in this, this space here and it's like this, you know, hip co-working space with a bunch of millennials and Gen Z working here. And it's like, it's like church for the next generation. And YouTube is like, it's like the, the spiritual curriculum, I think for, uh, this generation. And it's, it's ever present. It gives you, you know, like tips and techniques about how to live life it's entertaining and funny and, and um, it's just filling up so much time. So yeah, just a quick anecdote. Um, we have a friend who's teaches in an elementary school um, and was asking, you know, students in her fifth or sixth grade class, like, Hey, what are the 10 things you do on the internet? 
uh, and when you're on your phone, when you're on your device, whatever. And, um, and which is crazy to think that, you know, these fifth, sixth graders have like right. smartphones and access to devices, but that's just the way it goes. So, you know, every single one of the students, all 10 of their, there's 30 students, all all 30, every single one of their top 10 things were all YouTube channels. No. And so, yeah, like, like it was like this little, it's like this little focus group of how pervasive and, you know, good way, bad way, neutral way, whatever that YouTube has become. Like it is the broadcast medium to the emerging generations. So, you know, as a, as an example, I mean, we interview young people who, who go through these major life crises the book you lost me was really focusing on those who lose their faith and this the the bottom line of that is they actually lose their faith at an earlier age than most people in the church realize like at 12 13 14 years old 15 years old they're they're still in the youth group because their parents want them to go and it's like a social club but they're not actually mentally checked in well what's happening now with youtube is that they're actually even more likely to find a whole plausibility structure for not believing like yeah like there's plenty of atheist channels that were you know or, or science channels or you know almost like myth busters for faith and and so you know now you have the ability to be discipled to be catechized to be led into a system of beliefs that says yeah this whole christian thing like how do you really hold it all together because it doesn't hold water and so youtube you know that's why i call the gospel according to youtube it is as you say for those of us that are, you know, a little older but don't have maybe as much access to young people, it is, um, it is one hundred percent a massive shaping influence with this emerging generation. So, for those of us who don't use it as frequently and are hearing this, I mean, I, you would have laughed at the dinner we were at the other night when I was like, "You guys, I promise, my friends in my twenties and their twenties are telling me how much they're using YouTube." My friends are like, "Why? How? Why? How do you search?" I mean, like acting like it was the most foreign thing ever. And it is to me. I mean, I don't use it like that either. I have a couple of channels that I really enjoy, but I don't use it on a daily basis. How can we? We, as people who are influencing the next generation, what does it look like to use places like YouTube? And do we have to be on all of them? Like, do we have to be on TikTok? And do we have to be on Instagram? And do we have to be on YouTube to be discipling the next generation well? No. I mean, I think you have to have a, a, an appreciation, understanding of it as a uh, pipeline, right? As a, I think Jamie Smith calls it sort of like a, a, a cultural liturg- liturgy, right? Like it, uh-huh. it is a liturgy of our current culture. <clears throat> and that's, Reddit, that's that's YouTube, that's all, all TikTok. All these things are a, f- a form of shaping how we think about the world. Um, so first, it, it, you don't have to use them, but you have to appreciate the pervasiveness and the. <clears throat> this is the digital Babylon thesis that the degree to which even a really good sermon is going to only go skin deep because it doesn't come um, into uh, people's brains in the same way as as these this content. And so one example we've been using as part of the Faith for Exile stuff is to the degree that you can take um, students, if like, let's say you're running a youth group or college ministry or even in a family, um, you know, what we've seen some of the most effective, resilient young disciples do or people that are working with them is they actually, they enter into that whole ocean and they start saying, hey, listen, let's, let's, let's give you some channels. Let's give you some people to watch that are, you know, it's not like we're like going to endorse them or not endorse them, but we're going to try to like help you wade into that content. So, you know, like one guy that I've, I've been working with in, in is a, a youth pastor, almost every sermon he goes through and says, I'm going to play like a podcast from 
John Tyson, or I'm going to play, you know, I'm, I'm going to show you a little YouTube channel because they're trying to help um, not just be cool and hip and like, you know, playing a little film clip and like, oh, you might have seen this and now I'm going to make my point and get bring it to an emotional close. They actually view exposing students to a range of different podcasts as actually part of the culture, building cultural discernment muscles. Oh, brilliant. Yeah. So that you're actually saying, yeah, check this out. Maybe, maybe you're a young scientist. You know, this is actually one of the, the, the dirty secrets I think of youth ministry work is that for young people that are interested in science or philosophy or, you know, engineering or medicine or uh, business or creative careers, like the church doesn't actually speak very authoritatively into those specific careers for young people. And so, you know, one way to think about it is, hey, let's play some podcasts, not just about atheism and belief, but about, hey, we're going to actually listen to someone talk about their career. They may or may not be actually a Christian, but we're going to, we're going to help expose you. We're going to help you enter into that ocean of content. Um, and, and by doing so, we're going to give you maybe some lenses, some, some tools, some language, um, like it's safe. It's not necessarily safe out there, but we're going to give you um, an opportunity to think about what it means for you as a Christian, as a young Christian, to enter into that space. So that's, that's I think, one way we could respond to it. We don't have to know it all as a youth leader. In fact, you can't even pretend to. Right. But if you don't help these young people get into their um, in, in, into the digital context with a real tool for you know, making sense of it. I, I just don't think you're going to be able to, to minister effectively. So for my friends that are listening that are parents, like you are a parent of teenagers and you're right, you can't learn it all. I can just, I can almost hear them talking back to us from the grocery store being like, how do I even find YouTube channels that are good for my kids to watch? Or how do I even find things that will help them? What's the, is there a process of how you learn along with your kids as you're trying to find them good resources? Because if they're going to be scrolling YouTube anyway, let's find them channels that are uplifting and that have good content that will help them grow in their faith. But how do we find those in the first place? Well, first, asking yourself that question is really good, right? Like, so as a parent, um, you know, it's not enough now just to, you know, I think I think my parents, you know, we, we had like a simple rule, like don't watch rated R movies. My dad did, like yeah. can't watch rated R movies until you're over 18 unless we watch them together. And, um, you know, that was just the way we did it. And when it came to television, you know, you had the television on in, the, in you know, the room. And I still remember my mom when I was a kid, like, oh, that, that, that television program seems demonic. I want you to turn it off. Right. So it was like you, we could all monitor our use of screens, parents of children. And frankly, even now, you know, of course with online porn, that's like everyone has access, you know, it's like, it's really different now that everyone could take these devices and watch whatever they want. Right. You know, like I remember, I remember discovering my son and watched 13 reasons why, you know, and I was like, dude, why did you watch that? It's like, there's a show about pro about suicide. And, um, and I, like, you don't have the same, you don't, you just have to first acknowledge as a parent, you don't have the same amount of control that you used to have and you can batten down every hatch. You can put plywood on the windows. You can, you can, you know, control Wi-Fi signal. You can choose not to give your kids cell phones until they're 27, whatever, right. whatever you want to do, <laughs> but you, you cannot, it's not a, it's not a matter of, of, of if, but when young people are going to come into this bigger, broader world and say like, man, you know, like you can, you can experience stuff through, you know, one young person we interviewed, like, you know, they came, they came to access porn, like quite, and this is part of the demonic nature of the porn industry, as I personally believe it, that, you know, like, like this one kid we interviewed came across, um, you know, an advertisement for, um, 
you know, w- women's lingerie or whatever at school, just, you know, doing a search um, for some like the bronze age. So the porn industry is like piping this stuff into younger, younger, younger hearts. Our study called the porn phenomenon actually showed exactly that. So first you can't control it. Second, the best you can do is, is to try to get on top of that mountain and say, let's actually give you a perspective as a young person about what it is that we're, we're meant to do with our minds, with our hearts, with our eyes, um, you know, with these, with these areas where we think are private, but they may or may not be private. And so, you know, yeah, I think it's a wonderful thing for you to um, look for podcasts or YouTube channels or whatever, but, but it also is for, for, for me, I'll just speak to my own family. What I've, come to realize like I can't keep up with my son's or my daughter's intake of social media. And I really don't want to tell them how to do this more, more what we've been trying to do is just say, guys, you know, h- how do we approach this stuff as Christians? There's a whole section in the faith for Excel's book that Mark wrote. Like there's three primary questions we should be asking ourselves, you know, where, where does God show up? Where are the broken parts of life? You know, wh- where is, where's my response as a Christian? And so, like, we try to give young people, instead of, you know, like, here is the script you should read, we try to give them a a deeper story that they are going to be a part of as a Christian in this digital context. And so, therefore, then, you know, like, I have, I have started to pay my, my son, Zach, uh, to, to listen to um, sermons from on a podcast. Um, If he, if he journals about it and writes the scripture that's being preached about, because I actually think Part of the reason for that is, um, for me, was I, I actually decided I, I really want I want him to have some sort of aligned incentive. It's like you know, paying like five dollars, right? Like, you know, like I'd rather have you spend as much time as you as you can, you know, listening to some of the spiritual content. And I, you know, like John, he's gone through a lot of John Tyson's sermons, and and it's like it's awesome because I I don't see that as competitive to the work of our local church or demeaning to like our pastor. It's like, no, it's like just more, more stuff that he is now learning how the rhythms of, of cultivating a spiritual, you know, life of the mind and using, using his device now as uh, a way of accessing that. Um, I just find that to be great. Right. So um, it's, it's really about the postures we take as parents, I think, and partnering with students and young people in our, in our homes and in our churches, rather than saying, here's how you must do it, or I'm going to control you, or I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to, you know, put you in bubble wrap until you're 27. You know, right. said we got to, we got to prepare them for that real life in the world. Hey friends, just interrupting this conversation to tell you about one of our new friends that y'all are going to love that is making the show possible. And that is class pass. One thing that will kill your fitness goals in 2020 in the bad way is boredom. Because within a couple of weeks, you may be sick of going to the same gym or doing the same workout, but not with ClassPass. ClassPass is an all-access membership to over 30,000 of the best gyms and fitness studios all over the world. You can go where you want, when you want, and how you want. ClassPass is everything you need to make working out fun. You can try new workouts and studios without a commitment to a single gym or overpaying for drop-ins. Yoga, strength training, spin, bar, even boxing, ClassPass gives you a variety and the accountability you need to attend class. 
They've got something for everyone near your work, near your house. Class Pass is seriously everywhere. And monthly memberships start at just $15. You can cancel at any time. Mix it up and find the perfect studios and classes just for you. I am a huge fan of Class Pass. It's what got me into boxing that I do and have the little wraps in my car all the time. It also is why I tried like three new gyms around my house. I absolutely love Class Pass. And y'all know one of our favorite friends on the show, Mary-Kate Morrissey, who is in the traveling Broadway show of Mean Girls. If you haven't seen it, you need to go see our girl, Mary-Kate. Mary-Kate is a huge ClassPass fan. So as you're following her and watching all the gyms she's getting to go to is because she's part of ClassPass too. So you guys, you can get your first month free at ClassPass.com slash New Year's. Again, that's ClassPass.com slash New Year's for your first month free. Again, try classpass.com slash New Year's. You guys try it out. You're going to love it. It's really actually, it's actually really fun. And now back to the show. I'm assuming y'all have done this research. Maybe you haven't. But based on what you know, not what is the right age for a kid to get a phone, because that's each family and whatever. But what's the, what's the age that a lot of kids are getting their own phone that they can have in their own room that separates from what their parents can see them doing everything. What age is that happening about? You know, I don't actually have a good answer to that. I probably should. Um, we, we've been doing a lot of stuff on what we call TechWise Family with Andy Crouch. Oh, gosh, I love that book. Thanks. And, you know, it's sort of part of our larger theme as a company at Barna to try to help the church navigate this new digital age and the new digital Babylon and Andy's work is a great part of that. Um, and the other reason why I don't really have a, a simple answer to the question of when do people get their, those phones is even if they don't get the phone themselves, let's say at fifth grade, sixth grade, whatever I've observed in the data. And then even just in our family and other families, like my sister, you know, sister's family and others, like, like even if the 10 year old doesn't have the phone, they have their sister's phone or they have, um, you know, an Xbox or they have access to the internet. And so, you know, that's part of this, this pervasiveness of screens is that, you know, there is a bit of a rite of passage that, you know, used to be getting your driver's license was like the big rite of passage uh, or going to high school, but, you know, getting your phone has become one of those big rites of passage, but it's also like, it's important, but it's also like, I think we, we sort of miss the fact that in most households, um, you know, access to screens is so readily apparent or in a school setting or in other places that, um, you know, again, you can't just like, you can't lock it all down enough to where you can, you can, you can avoid it. I mean, we, we went to do this, uh, my, my kids, uh, my middle daughter, my son and I went on a mission trip last spring break to Honduras. And, you know, we were up in a serving a little medical clinic up in a coffee farm in the hills of Honduras and uh, mountains of Honduras, I should say, so Harley Hills. And um, this, the guy who was the owner of the coffee farm was like, he was like very protective of his Wi-Fi code because he said, we have so many people who, you know, will find a phone somewhere, find a device somewhere, and then they, they you know, get our Wi-Fi password because they want to stream YouTube videos, he said. Oh, my gosh. And uh, it's crazy, right? Like, the, like, you can't hide. You cannot hide from the power of this of this sort of colonizing force of, of, uh, of digital technology. And again, as Christians, I think we should welcome it. There's so many great things that happen. It's actually helps propel, um, you know, the Christian message and, and, you know, Christian influence into places of the world that are hard to reach. Um, you know, um, there's some incredible aspects of technology that none of us want to go back to a pre-digital age, right. but you know, how do we, how do we think about it? And, you know, 
think about what it means to be fully human in that context is a, a critically important question. And it feels to me that those of us in our 30s and 40s are a little bit stuck in the middle where it's not we use it every day, all day long, and we are as addicted as anybody else. And maybe the generations older than us aren't quite as we are. And then the ones below us are native tech. What was the phrase? Native technology? Digital natives. There we go. Thank you. Digital natives. And so they've never known a life without it. And so for people like us, what would you, what's some advice you'd give on how we better handle our phones. I struggle with it as much as anybody of like having good balance and not being on my phone all the time and, and having some separation from it. And yet not having a husband and kids right now in my life that I talk to in my house after everyone goes to bed. Right. So how, how do we learn how to handle our own spiritual disciplines and phone disciplines being in this digital Babylon? Well, again, I think that the TechWise family um, has so many great insights about that, even though it's a family emphasis, the principles of that are, you know, because you've, you've raised the question of like, how do we handle that as singles? And that's another great point that technology, like social media and technology has allowed for people to be more connected than ever. And, you know, like when I'm traveling and in a hotel room, I'm just as, as uh, single as anyone. And I feel, you know, like last night I got a chance uh, to talk to a friend for an hour and, and, you know, my, my family's going through a tough time with my wife's, uh, illness. And so, you know, like I was, I was connected. And so for, for that reason, you know, Annie, I know we've had these conversations before, like, you know, I think technology is wonderful because it can be a real blessing for people who otherwise might feel really isolated or alone or not part of a larger household of faith. And so, um, we should take those things and not feel guilty about them because they they are blessing that you know that these te- these technologies allow us to stay connected. Then there's also the practices that we as especially as Christians ought to commit ourselves to. And Andy Crouch writes about you know taking uh, a day off a week from our devices and a week off a year and taking sabbaticals and finding real ways of of living in a different rhythm with our technologies. Those are obviously easier said than done, not waking up with or going to bed with our devices. And, you know, then then as we've been saying earlier, as parents or as others, like how do we think about even our own uh, disciplines or um, approaches uh, to how we, you know, uh, escape or, or anesthetize ourselves from the pressures of modern life. That's actually one of the – I was talking with a researcher who does a lot of stuff in media and and television, does a bunch of stuff for ESPN and the big networks. And he said they, they have incontrovertible proof through their research. He's, he's a Christian guy, but not a Christian company. They have incontrovertible proof in their research that young adults use episodes of The Office, literally that program, to help escape the pressures of the anxious days and nights that they live. Wow. Like literally students. Students, young people, um, so so all any of us, uh, it's like, hey, I want to just like, you know, veg out, and that particular program. I mean, all all programming on some level does that, but but you know, that particular program, students are saying that's like our outlet to feel less anxious when we watch, um, you know, Steve Carell, you know, uh, as the as the doofus boss, like it right. feel, it, it helps sense of like, you know, the, the doofus educators or doofus bosses that we have to work with. The evidence is coming in through these through these research studies, not even from Christians, another lady by, by the name of Jean Twenge, 
who does a bunch of stuff on the effects of digital technology shows like there's a there's absolutely a correlation to mental health issues and and isolation and loneliness and depression uh, with the hours that young people spend um, with screens. So we should take all this in and say, okay, how do we want to live the best kind of life, the better kind of life that God calls us to? And um, you know, to, so using our devices in the right rhythms, in healthy rhythms, is really the the answer, or at least some some aspect of the answer to that. Yeah, and it just doesn't seem like anyone quite has the exact answer to what that healthy rhythm is, right? Because I guess it's different for all of us. I think it is. I think that's true. I, it's funny because my dad, you know, it, we've talked, we've emphasized a lot about the the pressures of young people, and and that's rightly so. But my, you know, my dad's just turned 70 this last year and and he's been selling stuff on eBay as a, <laughs> a bit of a hobby and extra income and stuff. And like, so now, you know, he, he's on his phone as much as anyone in our family, you know, holidays because he's checking, you know, the bids that he's receiving and yeah. you know, corresponding with his buyers and sellers and with eBay or whatever. And so it's just funny. It's a, uh, you know, digital life has, there's a fancy word called disintermediation, right? It's, it's, it's changing, uh, bundling and unbundling how we spend our time, our relationships to institution, our relationships with other people. That's a, it's a fancy word, but it's a big deal. And it, it's changed, um, you know, a lot of things It's changing how churches are going to operate and, and, you know, how they, how they think about things like, you know, we're finding lots of evidence in the research that people don't go to youth groups. Young, young people don't attend youth groups for the same reasons that they attended youth groups 20 years ago. Oh, interesting. You know, the church is being disintermediated in ways that are, are very profound. And we're not always fully appreciative of, of, of how that is going to, you know, change people's expectations. And then I think the relationship between, you know, what it means for us to actually disciple them. But, um, you know, these are fun questions. You know, that sounds fun. Uh, these are fun questions. <laughs> these are fun questions for us to, to talk through. And, um, you know, then to, to as Christian communities and people's, people of other faith and, you know, people who want to live a life of meaning, you know, like we, we all have to wrestle through these questions in a, in a, in a very, very uh, personal way, as you say, like each person is going to come to their own, their own answers and, and rightly so. Give us a little hope around this, too, because a minute ago you said we wouldn't want to go back to a pre-technology era. I've been watching The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel on Amazon Prime, and it's set in the 50s and 60s. And there are times, day where I catch myself going like, oh, man, that looks so easy because they have one telephone in the house. And tell me all the, not all the reasons, but tell me some of the reasons why it's really great that we are alive right now as faith people when technology is so prevalent. Well, I'll just remind you as people, I mean, you know, think about how the fact that uh, this is a silly little story, but, you know, like just checking sports scores or the weather or, you know, move, movie uh, uh, times yeah, you're right. or reservations or, you know, directions. I mean, it's just unbelievable how hard it is to even think back to, you know, what life was like in a pre-digital age. My, my dad you know, grew up in Cleveland. We moved to Arizona. He moved to Arizona. And so like he would have me call an 800 number and listen to a recorded message late at night about how the Cleveland Indians had performed. <laughs> and, you know, like if you like, you literally wouldn't be able to know the score sometimes for 20, like 12 hours till this newspaper came the next day or, you know, 36 hours right. because sometimes they were late, late games. So, you know, the speed of information, uh, our ability to stay connected. Um, we just finished a big study called the Connected Generation with World Vision, and we were able to interview 15,000 18 to 35 year olds. Oh my gosh! Around the world, 
the 25 countries and we like we just could would have had any chance to do that and so you know like our research methods are better you know i think churches have a chance of of communicating more effectively and more often uh, to people we can know more about their lives without being you know creepy um right in some cases we should um you know i was actually thinking we did a study the porn phenomenon i mentioned earlier all, all via online surveys and we asked people let's geek out just for a second so we did this study and we asked people would you be willing to go and do the survey the first couple of questions were like we're going to ask you about some you know private questions around you know attitudes towards sex and sexuality and pornography if you're uncomfortable just go ahead and say you know you're not interested and drop out that's fine but if you're going to go forward that's what we're going to be asking you about and we had 93 or 97 percent it's been like four years since we did it but it was like over 90 percent of people that were asked the question, do you want to continue with the survey? Said, yeah, let's go for it. I, I would like to take the, que- the questionnaire. And I actually think that's another huge part of our current environment that is partly driven by technology, which is people are pretty open about mental health issues and about pornography and about you know um, issues of depression and anxiety and you know our, our, our sort of inner lives at a, at a time that I, I don't remember. And certainly from just a social research point of view, we actually see more than ever uh, people just being really pretty open, almost, almost brutally open. And and so I think social media has has encouraged a sort of openness and sharing and transparency that is a is a, is a wonderful opportunity for the church to you know enter into the space of those conversations and say we actually have a, a deeper answer and maybe even a safer place for a deeper conversation about what it is you're struggling with. And maybe we can even reframe those questions, not just about, you know, your own happiness or life satisfaction, but about your deepest identity in, in who Jesus says you are. So I just think there are just a tremendous, I mean, I love being alive now. I love studying and helping the church understand the pressures of the current, you know, generation, because I find um, the honesty and um, YouTube is, it, make, it makes me laugh. I just think this is a, you know, it's a it's a funny era when you have uh, someone who could become a literally an international star because they have a, a camera in their bedroom and they can you know they can talk interestingly. Right. You know, right? The, the podcast world. So so digital technologies. You just you know just pick your industry, pick your topic, pick your pick your uh, arena, and and digital world has changed so much. Uh, my wife I mentioned is going through cancer, so you know like even healthcare and speed of some of the information that we're getting and just the, the capabilities of staying connected and connecting researchers across the globe. I mean, every single space um, is, is for the most part being, being improved. You could look at things like pornography or human trafficking and other kinds of challenges. Um, you know, our political process being, you know, more hijacked by, you know, international forces. I mean, like it's, it's, it's a brand new, brave new world. Some of those things are, um, are crazy, but it's, um, you know, it's a fun time to be alive. That That's just my base reaction to all that. Yeah, that's great. I, it's just such a good reminder because I can, part of this is my Enneagram 7-ness and I don't like pain and I don't like things that seem scary. And and so part of it, sometimes I can find myself, if this new technology world feels scary, I can wish we were back 20, 50 years ago. But you're, it's such a good reminder that like we're actually really lucky to get to disciple and lead and be a part of what's going on right now in Digital Babylon because we we have as much power to reach everyone as the porn industry does or as a sex trafficker does. We have that same technology in our hands. 
That's right. Yeah, totally. I feel like it's a special privilege whether we're whether our posture is excited or or pessimistic or you know hopeful or somewhat you know closed fisted. Like God actually just calls us to be faithful. Get back to something we started with. Like, you know, God is sovereign over the kingdoms of men. He's got a sovereign over the technologies of humankind. God is sovereign over, you know, how we respond. And so, you know, the more we can, um, you know, make our, make our peace with that and then lean into, um, you know, how do we respond as a family? Like it's, it sucks that, you know, that the, the most horrific kind of porn is that has ever been imagined is available today. And it's also just a, a glaring indictment of our great need for a redeemer and for, you know, someone who, who would have saved us from ourselves. And, and, you know, like I, I've been thinking about, I was reading in the economist recently about the people who have to scour the internet for this atrocious demonic evil stuff and of, you know, like, like child porn um, and, you know, the, like the, how the church could respond to the first responders who are those men and women in San Francisco and, you know, data farms around the world who have to literally go through and say, like, flag, this is disgusting and evil. And we got to go figure out what kind of person and where that person is like, we got to stop it. Right. So there's there's like just an incredible opportunity for us in digital Babylon to be people of redemption, to be people who would come in and restore and put things back to right. And, um, you know, who, who, you know, even, even the mental health of those people who have to be first responders to that, that kind of horrific thing. We have a real crisis of of mental and public health when it comes to porn. And so, you know, people that are in the industry, the people that have to scour the internet for it, people that are subjected to, um, you know, to to unwitting, you know, pornographic acts, um, students, young people who, you know, search for the bronze age, right. but then came, you know, that came across it and they're sort of now sucked into, you know, the, the visual stimulus. So like, like how does the church respond as people of good news in that, in that kind of environment? That's a perfect example of how we as church leaders and as Christian parents and as others, you know, whether we're Christians or, or people of other conviction, you know, how we can become, you know, people who, who lean in and, and really, you know, pursue a better, a better, a better place. Right. And for those for Christians who say, you know, Jesus calls us even, especially into those darkest places. Okay. David Kim. And as you do, you give me hope, you give me hope that the internet's not going to ruin my life <laughs> and that we can use it for good. <laughs> well, uh, we went a lot of different directions today. And it's fun to be able to talk about that. I mean, it's, it's, uh, there is hope in all this because, um, you know, like, first of all, what, what option do we have? But, but yeah, secondly, right. because it's an amazing time to be alive. It really is. And um, it's a neat, neat environment where, you know, we couldn't be talking today. We couldn't be making the kind of um, things that a lot of us are making. And, um, you know, like, it's just, it's a really cool opportunity for the church to to really become, I think, what it, what it is meant to be. Yeah, I agree with you. Hey, before we go, will you give us a little update on your wife, Jill? You mentioned that she has cancer. And for those of us that follow you and are friends with you on the social media, thanks to the internet, we have been keeping up with that. Will you give us a little update on how she's doing? Sure. Yeah, I love that. that those who follow me on the social media. Um, That's right. <laughs> so, so uh, yeah, thanks for asking. I mean, my wife, Jill's uh, in 2017 was diagnosed with brain cancer, and we've been through a long, long journey. And, um, you know, she, um, she's, she's doing pretty well. Um, it's definitely, uh, um, she's 
doing radiation and chemo and you know there's a lot of challenges that she has um just you know with with the treatments but she's she's so awesome she just encourages us all the time and the family like hey keep your chin up we got a long fight and you know she's a she's an inspiration to a lot of us just loves jesus so much that's actually been the hardest part for me is like you know man, how does someone who loves jesus so much have to go through something so hard and um you know but she keeps she keeps reminding us of you know um the ultimate you know purpose of life and she's just like loves on us and serves us and so you can if, if any of you know your listeners haven't heard or would like updates you can go to prayforjill.com that's yeah. uh, where we, we keep our family uh, family story updated yeah and we will um we will link that so everybody can find it pretty easily we would love to keep praying for her i like your wife and i like you a lot so we want to we want to be a part of that thanks um, okay, the last question. Is there anything we didn't talk about that you want to talk about? No, I mean, we've covered so much. Um, <laughs> we did. I had a lot of questions. I've been ready for you. I've, I've been needing some Dave Kinnaman to speak into my life. So I've been waiting on you. Thanks. Well, I'm glad. Thank you for making it. Work. Thanks for being patient. But um, oh, you I, um, I feel like the story of like what God is weaving together with these resilient young disciples is really inspiring. And it's been, it's been the most you know, cool thing to hear young people reading this book and and saying, yeah, this is the kind of church we want to see. And it's not, you know, the, the book has has plenty of things like after as soon as you know how it goes, as soon as you publish the book, you're like, man, I would do a 10 things different. Right. But um, um, what, just like the first in the opening chapter, right? That's, but, um, that's right. So, so, you know, the book has limitations, but it also has some just how exciting it is that the church is in good hands with this emerging generation of young Christians is a uh, is a really special, special thing. And um, we're stoked to be able to tell that story. Yeah. Well, we are grateful. We'll make sure to link to it. Um, hey, the last question we always ask, because the show is called That Sounds Fun, tell me what y'all do for fun. Okay. So, you know, we've been talking about all the um, the nerdy things that I do with my PowerPoint <laughs> slide. So I'm just going to keep the typecast going yeah, and say good. that I enjoy I enjoy building Legos at the, at the Christmas holiday. I, they, they have these fun, like, architecture sets that are – you know, like a hundred bucks or a couple hundred bucks. And it's like, a, you know, the Hogwarts castle, yeah. or, you know, the, the Disney castle or, you know, the tower bridge or the Taj Mahal. And so I, I think I would have been an architect if I wasn't a researcher yeah. or if I wasn't a pastor, I would have been an architect. So it's, that's one of my favorite things, you know, you kind of lose track of time. And, and do you keep them up? Do you just leave them put together? Well, I do. I keep them in my office. So when you come out, we'll do a live, that sounds fun yes. podcast at Barna HQ. And then we'll build some <laughs> Legos together and you'll see that the reason I own a company is to rent an office so that I can display <laughs> these Lego models. That's awesome. What do you do while you're putting them together? Do you, do y'all listen to other things, or do your kids sit with you, or Jill sit with you, or is it just time to think? My kids do a little bit of it with me. Sometimes they're like, you know they they get bored, and I have to like you know remind them that I won't pay for you know their school if they don't help me build it or whatever. But um, uh, no, we do it like the holidays. So sometimes we'll have, you know, um, I'm not a football fan, but I'm a big basketball yeah. fan. So I'll sometimes listen to, uh, like Christmas day, I'll like watch all five NBA games and, you know, build, build the Legos. But, you know, that's one of my favorite things to do each year is to, is to build. I've got a couple sets that I didn't get a chance to get to this, this Christmas. So I'm like, look, it's, you know, j- middle of January here. I'm looking forward to getting back to it. Yeah. They're like waiting over there for you. Totally. Oh, I love it. Okay. I, I keep thinking about getting into Legos because I like puzzles so much. So I may need to get a little small set and just give it a go and see if I think it's fun. It will be fun for you, I think. And then the, the other thing I would recommend to you as a puzzle builder is uh, a group called uh, Liberty Puzzles, which are these okay. woodcut puzzles. 
Liberty Puzzles out of Boulder, Colorado, and they absolutely redefine the fun. Like there's a 3D puzzles where you build like castles or whatever, and yes. that's fine. But those are kind of frustrating because they fall apart. But yeah. if you if you try these Liberty Puzzles, man, they they are they're like so fun. So. Okay, doing it. I'm ordering one. Thank you for doing this today, David. I'm so grateful for you. Thank you. I I feel the same way about you, Annie. And it's uh, too rare when we get a bit, chance to be together. And um and thanks for making this happen. And just oh, uh, again, thank you. Love love your uh, love your zest for life and your uh, love for people and love for you know doing interesting interviews and um, and thank thanks for thanks for just your friendship. Well, thank you. Oh, friends, don't you just love him? He's brilliant. Oh my gosh, I could just talk to him forever and forever and forever. I just adore him. What a great mind and great thoughts and a great heart. We're just lucky to live on the planet at the same time as people like Dave Kinnaman who are helping us sort out what is going on in our faith and in our culture. Make sure you grab a copy of his new book, Faith for Exiles, just released a couple of months ago, and it is so great. I think you'll really, really love it. It's so helpful. And I'll personally endorse anything that David writes, but the one that really hooked me and the one that really helped when I was particularly spending a lot of time with college students was You Lost Me. I loved that book as well. Hey, make sure you give David a follow. Tell him thanks for being on the show. And since we recorded, he has given an update on his wife, Jill's health. You can go to prayforjill.com and it's, um, it's a pretty sad update. And so if you have a little time in your prayers, if you have a little extra money you'd like to donate to help care for Jill and David and his family, um, they have all, that all set up for you. Just go to prayforjill.com. I would love for them to just get an influx of love from us this week. So if you get a chance to do that, I hope you will. If you need anything else from me, you know I'm embarrassingly easy to find. Annie F. Downs on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, all the places you may need me. That's how you can find me. And I think that's it for me today, friends. One week of Love Better Tour down, one more to go. I hope we'll see you this coming week in Carmel, Indiana, Florence, Alabama, Smyrna, Georgia, or at Chattanooga, Tennessee. I would just love, love, love if y'all would join us. Just go to CompassionLive.com, and that's how you can find tickets for the one. Carmel is all the way sold out, but there are still um, seats in the other three events. All right, that's it for me today, friends. Go out and do something that sounds fun to you, and I will do the same. And we will see you back here on Thursday with my girl, one of my dearest friends, Melanie Shankle.